0: Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston.
1: Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco.
0: Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada.
2: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me.
0: You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes!
3: I'm Jesse Thorne. Niall Rogers was there for the very start of Disco. His songs can be big, almost over the top. Sheik's La Freak, Diana Ross's I'm Coming Out. That was kind of the point. But when Rogers is crafting a song, he also pays attention to the little things. Take one of his first hits with Sheik, Everybody Dance.
2: Everybody dance. Doo 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 doo, clap your hands, clap your hands. And I remember I played that for Bernard Edwards the first time and it was all complicated with these hip jazz chord changes. And he said to me, Uh my man, um, uh, you know, it's happening but uh, what does do 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 doo mean? And I said, well, you know, it's the same thing as la-la-la-la. He said, well, why <laughs> did you say that? And I said, because doo do 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 doo is hipper. I said, if you listen to all these these records, you always hear
3: them go do do do
2: do No one's going La-la-la-la-la-la. It was like the difference between hip and being you know, like a Boy Scout around a campfire. It just changed. It's Bullseye.
3: Coming up, I talk with the producer and musician Nile Rodgers. Sometimes it seems like everything he touches turns platinum. Nile Rodgers produced hits for Diana Ross, Madonna, David Bowie, and a whole pile of others. We'll talk about the musical movement he was
2: at the very front of—disco—and why it dominated. You know, if you if you look at the time period, you have this all-inclusive music, um, this all-inclusive scene. Didn't make any difference with your white, black, fat, gay. If you had music that kept people on the dance floor you rule, and he'll reflect on the first time he saw the glam
3: rock group roxy music it was almost spiritual i have to say plus we'll hear a classic bit from the powerhouse comedy duo of the 50s and 60s mike nichols and elaine may and i'll tell you about the rare fashion journalist who cares as much about 16 year olds in harlem as he does about models smoking outside shows bill cunningham all that coming up on bullseye let's go Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff that's worth your time. This week, a couple of all-time faves from Mark Frauenfelder of boingboing.net. Hey, Mark. Hey,
4: Jesse. How's it going? It's going
3: okay. Let's start with this uh, novel, The Hunter, uh, by Richard Stark, which, which is actually the name of a man named Donald Westlake. This is a 50-ish-year-old crime novel. What in your
4: mind uh, makes it stand the test of time? Yeah, it's, it's uh, from 1962, and the thing about it is that it really matches the kind of current zeitgeist for dark television shows, where the protagonist is a, a, basically a sociopathic, amoral person— But he has to deal with people who are even worse than him. And the writing is really tight, and uh, the plots are good and intriguing. And so uh, I really enjoyed this novel and flipped through it. There were a couple of points in it, actually, where I was so, like, kind of grossed out by what a, a nasty guy Parker was that I wanted to put it down. But I had to find out what would happen, so I finished it. And I am going to continue to read these these novels. I'm really glad that I, that I discovered them.
3: Let's talk about Every Noise at Once, which is, it's a website. And um, I'm looking at the website now. It is essentially a word map, if people know what those are. Some words a little bigger than others spread out across the page um, of music genres. And they range from music genres that I... Certainly recognize, like say synth pop or funk rock, uh, to things that I am less familiar with, like uh, Madchester
4: or death grind. Yeah, it's it's kind of shaped like a, a cloud. And so what you do is you just mouse over any one of these genres. I'm guessing there are a couple hundred on the page, maybe. 100 between 100 and 200 it's hard to tell and then you just click on it and you will hear a sample of that genre and if you want to explore it further you click on the little set of arrows next to the genre and it will take you to another subcloud that has a bunch of bands that fit that genre And and the proximity of the names of the bands to each other I assume means that the bands kind of sound alike a little bit. And so this is, like, such a cool way to find out about bands that uh, and music I've never even heard of before.
3: Let's give it a try. I've got the website open here, and I'm going to click on Gothic Symphonic Metal. Now all I have to do, Mark, is decide which of these is my favorite Gothic Symphonic Metal band. Within Temptation, Forever Slave, Lullacry, Theater of Tragedy.
4: Xandria with an X. I wonder is Kate Bush in that list? That sounded slightly. <laughs> <laughs> well, one I found uh, Vaporwave, which I had not heard of before. I thought was pretty good.
3: I think you could have a good time on this website. Without even listening to the music samples, I mean, you just click on any one of these genres, and you get to learn all about skeleton lipstick or Dracula Lewis or L.A. Vampires goes Ital or Polka Haunted.
4: Yeah, isn't it a, Isn't it a fun way to like discover and explore music? It is. This is fascinating. Well, Mark Frauenfelder from
3: boingboing.net recommends Every Noise at Once, the online music map. You'll find the link on our website or just Google Every Noise at Once. And the novel The Hunter by Richard Stark. Thanks as always, Mark. Thanks a lot, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you haven't heard of Niall Rogers, you've certainly heard his music. He's one of Pop's most legendary songwriters and producers. He's worked with groups and artists including But Not Limited to Duran Duran, Madonna, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and Diana Ross. And he's also a performer. His own band Chic recorded monster, epic, over-the-top hits like Le Freak. The disco pioneer is responsible for the distinctive guitar line on the new Daft Punk single, Get Lucky. Let's hear a little bit of that now.
4: We're up all night to get some, we're up all night for good fun, we're up all night to get lucky, 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 we're up on night to get lucky.
3: Nile Rogers and I spoke in 2011 when he had just put out a memoir, Le Freak, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be had. I um, <laughs> I was reading... So in the first couple of chapters of uh, your new book, which is called Le Freak, I, it was sort of a continuing series of revelations of just... Outrageous family situations yeah so i let's start um you, you were born in the very beginning of the nineteen fifties in uh New York. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about uh your mother, your father, and um the man who had the most fatherish role in
2: your life your stepfather yes my, my mom uh was a really cool girl um she was actually born in jersey but uh By the time I was born, she had moved to New York City. Uh, My biological father is Nile Rogers Sr. He was a percussionist who was sort of popular at the time. He played with a guy named Paul Whiteman, um, who was known as the king of jazz. And tell me about your your stepfather, Bobby. Uh, My my, uh, stepfather, uh, my mom married Bobby, I think, like in the early 60s, um, maybe even the late 50s. And Bobby was uh Jewish incredibly handsome maybe one of the coolest guys i've ever known
3: if you you called your uh mother and stepfather by their first names and if you had told me that and you were born in you know i was born in 1981 or even 1966 and you were 7 years old in 1973 or something like that i don't think that would be that surprising But I I imagine that in the late 1950s, early 1960s, a a black lady and a Jewish guy uh, married and living together (laughs) with a few different kids by different people calling them by their first names in a semi-open
2: marriage was... Pretty crazy. I would say it was a very open matter. (laughs) (laughs) wasn't anything semi about it.
3: (laughs) Were you aware of the way that you were culturally different from your peers? That you had these hipster and uh, later to a growing extent junkie parents and they were, you know, they had their artsy friends over I, all I can imagine, you don't describe it too specifically, but I just imagine a lot of people in black turtlenecks snapping instead of clapping. Absolutely. Um,
2: <laughs> it was almost a caricature of the beatnik scene. Um, I remember when this television show called Dobie Gillis came on and they had this character, Maynard G. Krebs. I was like, that's my man. I know Maynard. <laughs> um, y- y- you know, it didn't seem weird to me. Actually, other people's families seemed weird because everybody in my immediate circle... Um, were, they were like my parents, so everybody talked that hipster talk. Everybody was like, "Hey, you know the super slow junkie thing." Hey, nah, what's that? They actually no one ever called me Nile. I was put. but you know, hey, Pud, what's happening? Uh, did you see uh, strangers on a train? Yeah, that Hitchcock is a. You know it was all that kind of it was all it was all that kind of stuff, and I was a kid, so it was normal it was completely normal and the amount of gay people, the amount of um i mean it was a colorful crowd The other thing
3: about your childhood as as you describe it in your book is that you were in a thousand different places and also nowhere i mean you were living with your your two grandmothers you had you know this it, it just feels like the there was ne- it, i don't hear from you telling your story any time where you could be like this is the place where i am me and not where i have to have my dukes up
2: well that's almost true um, when the hippie movement became really popular. That was the first time I felt really, really comfortable. Um, from, a, from a very early age, I used to I developed insomnia really young. And uh, I'd stay up all night, uh, much to the discomfort of the adults in my world, um, because I'd have a light on or the television on or something like that, and they'd get So I started to run away and sleep on the train and then sneak back in the house before they would wake up in the morning. So one day when I when I was a lot older, I was about uh, 15 or 16. I had just moved back to New York from Los Angeles and um, I snuck out to uh, sleep on the subway and I ran into a hippie and uh, and this guy sort of took me under his wing. And from that moment on, I never. Um, I never really slept at home again, at least not for any lengthy period of time. But um, that night that I met this guy, we went and we slept in a crash pad. And it was a room filled with bodies, everybody lying on the floor on mattresses and wall-to-wall mattresses. And we smoked from a big hookah. And it was that communal life that made me feel comfortable because I always felt like someone had my back. The last time I visited
3: my, my aunt in Washington, D.C., Who's uh, probably just about your age. Um, she told me about going to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And she's African-American. And she, she was just in her closet. And she pulled out this huge peace sign that she had in the back of her car. And she's like, oh, I put this in the back of my car for when I drove to Woodstock. And her memory
2: of Woodstock That means was, she's a little older than me. She had a driver's license. Okay. Fair
3: enough. <laughs> um, so she, she... But not much because she's the kind of lady right. who no. was doing that stuff at 16. <laughs> so she, um, she said to me... Her recollection of Woodstock was this. That she got there. She looked around and saw all the white people and thought, Oh, I'm the only person here to see Sly. Right. <laughs> And I wonder if you had any self-consciousness about race being in a hippie world that was very, you know, it was partly about eliminating race as a category, but it was also very racialized.
2: Yeah, it was very real. Um, I, I, was, I was lucky because um, I lived in a certain part of New York. I lived in Greenwich Village, and even when I moved to the Bronx... Um, all of my friends were sort of. They, they were black hippies. They were white hippies. Puerto Ricans. It was. We were from this really eclectic, unusual mix of people. My best friends um, were deadheads. All the deadheads I knew were black. Um, some of the musicians that I played with played with uh, uh you know, Leopold Stokowski's sons, the the genius head of the American Symphony Orchestra. So we were we were a very cool. Group. It wasn't um, the racism that we used to feel mainly came from the outside world. In the hippie culture, um, I came along during the time of of the White Panthers, John Sinclair, the MC5, David Peel in the Lower East Side, the Stooges. So I I come from a a background where a lot of the musicians, um, whatever racism and racial problems that you had in society... That would go away in the context of a band. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician
3: and record producer Nile Rogers. In 1970, Nile Rogers met bassist Bernard Edwards and formed the Big Apple Band. They backed the R and B group New York City on the hit I'm Doing Fine Now. Let's hear a little bit of it. You were playing with a sort of traditional R&B group touring the country and that group who had had a big hit and um, had uh, opened for the Jackson 5 didn't end up having a lot of other chart success and you were playing with other groups uh, on and off. And this sort of ran from the early 70s into the mid 70s when disco started to happen for real. I wonder if you could describe to me, just aesthetically, what the difference was between the disco records that started to uh, that started to percolate in the mid seventies and the R and B records of uh, just a couple of years earlier.
2: Basically, what had happened? There was a, a sort of political, uh, spiritual, and musical convergence of all of these disparate, um, seemingly unconnected vibes and what happened was disco was the sort of party that said come on in everybody's invited you know the water's fine and i noticed that um the jazz guys that i used to follow religiously were all of a sudden starting to get hit records that were on the same charts as the r&b artists and then every now and then they would cross over to the pop and rock artists and it wasn't really called disco at the time it would later be called disco, but at the beginning, it was just sort of R&B. It was groove, it was funk, it was dance music, it was some other thing, but it had this shared DNA of jazz and R&B, but it was very open. And when I heard that happening and I saw it on the charts, the, the, the time had finally come where I knew where I belonged, where I had a place that I could do my jazzy, classical, wacky stuff and also write commercial hooks. And the very first song I composed for that style was a song by my band Sheik called Everybody Dance. And with these really hip chord changes, but I superimposed this ridiculously simple melody. And I wrote, everybody dance, do-do-do-do, clap your hands, clap your hands. I remember I played that for Bernard Edwards the first time, and it was all complicated with these hip jazz chord changes. And he said to me, uh, my man, uh, you know, it's happening, but uh, what the f does doo 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 mean? And I said, well, you know, it's the same thing as la la la. He said, well, why <laughs> did you say that? And I said, because doo 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 is hipper. I said, if you listen to all these, like, these records, you always hear them go doo 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 doo.
3: <laughs> do, 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 do.
2: no one's gone la 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 it was like the difference between hip and being you know like a boy scout around a campfire so I stuck that in everybody dance and chic was off and running.
3: I was listening to that song, I hadn't listened to it in a while, and the thing that struck me was just the absurd complexity of the bass line of that song. It's ridiculous. Because, I mean, it is, it is um, like a lot of dance records from that period, the bass, the bass is a really important part of the melody of the, that song, but it is just going all over everywhere. I yeah. mean, it is, there's a thousand different things happening. Absolutely. And it's interesting to me that one of the things that typified those chic records was the confluence of the simplest of simple, that they were were driven by the classic disco beat. I mean, with a lot of other stuff going on around it on the drums as well. But the central thing is that classic disco beat. They're driven by... Lyrics, like, I mean, they're all called dance something. Right. You know what I mean? Like, every song every song is like, we're well, all dance, dancing dance. together. I'm enjoying dancing. Like, <laughs> hey, isn't dancing great? And it, But at, then there are also these other things that are going on that are, like, laughably complicated for a pop yeah. record.
2: Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, that's what we call, um, in Chic, that's what we used to call DHM, the deep hidden meaning. I, I as a writer... And the most complicated person in the world, maybe even as a person, I, you know, I'm, I'm ridiculous. Um, and that's because everything that I do is governed by these invisible voices in my head of my old music teachers. Um, what I call the jazz and classical police. Um, excuse me now, during the recapitulation, were you, you know, it's like, OK, well, the counterpoint like, OK, guys. So that's the voices I always hear. Every time I write a song it's so complicated it's ridiculous and Bernard used to be the great um divining rod to find the, the the you know the the water that would save our lives because I was like you know this stuff is too complicated and many times he would say to me uh, you know, brother, you got five or six songs in here. <laughs> and he was right. We'd up writing five or six songs from a, an original idea that I would have.
3: You also helped create a, another central distinguishing element of disco as a sound, which is that breakdowns and breaks, Right. which, you know, I mean, obviously your song Good Times became the first, was transformed into the first huge hip-hop record, um, were a central part of what you were doing, which was something that you could do because you could make a lot you could put a lot more music on a 12-inch record than you could on a 45. Correct. And so you had room to have something very complicated break it all the way down to the simplest sometimes even just a drum pattern. That's right. And then build it
2: back up. The the, the concept with Chic was we always we believed our parts were clever. We were a part playing band and we always wanted to show it off. You know what I mean? So our our basic philosophy was you know, a song is just an excuse to go to a chorus, and a chorus is just an excuse to go to the breakdown. And that's really what we believed in. We just couldn't wait to get to the breakdown. And that was our our thing. We wanted to show people how the the, the song was constructed. And basically what we would do is we'd take it apart and then we rebuild it in the listener's ears so you could hear all those little parts come in because typically when you hear the full groove, you actually don't really know what we're playing. When I hear cover bands play chic songs, I'm laughing. I go, that's what you think we're playing? They don't get the subtleties. They don't understand the upbeats going against the down and still sounding like it's, it's all in the pocket because we have the four-on-the-floor bass drum. So we were always proud of what we did, and we wanted to show people how hip it was. And we also knew that breakdowns work live. After a break, Nile Rogers will talk about Producing for Diana
3: Ross, David Bowie, and the first time that he saw Roxy Music. It was almost spiritual, I have to say. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
4: Hi, this is Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host a new show about the epic fails and genius moments of being a mom. How do you take care of a baby and still find time to moisturize your tattoos? Join us every week to find out. And remember, you don't have to be a bad mom to be one bad mother. Subscribe for free on iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org. Hey gang, you can subscribe to the Bullseye podcast at MaximumFun.org.
3: It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the musician and record producer Nile Rodgers. We spoke in 2011. When we left off, we were talking about his days ruling the world of disco in the band Chic. Things were changing in uh, pop music as the idea of a dance club where DJs played records became central to people's experience of pop music relative to, say, hearing a song on the radio or going to see a band. And part of what that allowed was something that I think was central to what Chic was, which is it allowed for a band to exist as much as a concept or a sort of set of aesthetic values, you know, visual and musical and the whole nine yards as, as a group of people. So Chic were largely invisible. I mean, y- your shows were essentially an effort to create a live version of, a, of the album covers that didn't feature right. any of you. Right. That's a really interesting idea to me that you could start a band that, that almost removes the people from the equation.
2: Right. You're, you're, you're really, I love talking to you. You're great, man. This is, I'm not going to get any sleep today. Um, that's, you got it spot on. What happened was the ideology of that concept was, I went to, um, a show in London to see Roxy music and the Roxy, Roxy music was playing at this joint called the Roxy theater or the Roxy hole or something. And, and when I got in there, I had never heard of Roxy music prior to this. Um, uh, The girl I was dating took me there um, to see these guys. And when I got inside, I had seen something that was sort of familiar, like what I had seen at the Apollo, you know, because everybody came in with their shtick and their costumes and the whole bit. But once they got off stage and somebody else came on, but Roxy Music, they presented what I started to call... Um, a total immersive artistic experience like when you walked inside it was amazing the audience seemed like part of the vibe um, this sort of um, this textural music it was it was almost spiritual I have to say and then when we put our our chic sophisto funk band together because we sort of designed it we had an outline we had a a thumbnail concept of what it would be. And we started to fit the pieces into the puzzle. Um, I describe it was sort of like the Magnificent Seven. You go out and you're looking for gunslingers. And we found Tony Thompson first, who had just come from LaBelle. So he was into the fantasy fusion thing. So that was cool. Um, then we found Rob Sabino. And Rob Sabino is the real sort of undersung hero in Sheik. Because Rob Sabino turned us on to his... Buddy Ace Frehley's band Which was Kiss And when we went to see Kiss Pow All of a sudden It was clear as a bell These guys were on stage It was almost like a carnival, Where they come to town You get immersed in the world of Kiss And they pack up and go to the next town And I just looked at Bernard and said This is it We have to do this And Bernard agreed Because Bernard knew that I didn't look like him or act uh, I didn't act like him And he certainly didn't look like me or act like me, but we could create this thing where we both could come together and be those guys. We were role playing and we could both put on suits. We could pretend that we were Cab Calloway or something like that. But the modern version of Cab Calloway, a modern version of Count Basie, you know, Count Basie was the band leader. He sat there on the piano, but it was all the soloists and all those guys in his band that were the stars. He was the arranger. That's what Nile Rodgers was. Nile Rodgers was the songwriter, arranger. Bernard Edwards was the guy who was the band leader. And that's how our partnership worked so great. And at that point, um, you know, if you if you look at the time period, you have this all-inclusive music, um, this all-inclusive scene. Didn't make any difference whether you're white, black, fat, dis, um, uh, gay, uh lesbian, whatever. If you had music that kept people on the dance floor, you rule. We never had to explain it to the musicians. Like we never had to tell, um, you know, other musicians what, what Chic was about, and what our concept was about. And they never they never really called us a disco band in the same way that you would call Saron disco. Saron is clearly disco. The Village People are clearly disco. We were this other funk dance thing, which now... I will call disco because everybody keeps doing it, so forget it, you can't beat them, join them. One guy told me that our music was what they called black disco. I went, oh, guys, come on. <laughs> I, I want to ask,
3: I, I ask you about that part of it, because disco at its height in you know, 1978, 1979, was getting it from two sides. W- one side was this return to rock and roll that spawned "Disco Sucks," the "Disco mm-hmm. Sucks" movie. Right, that was, I think, I think we can say now, thirty years later, in, informed, you know, partly by people's aesthetic preferences, but also partly by a combination of of racism and homophobia. Yeah. People who w- did not like the idea of a world where everybody came in together That's in that right. way that you and described. that Sylvester
2: could outsell the Rolling Stones. Yeah, but the
3: the <laughs> The other way that disco was getting it was from um, people who saw themselves as defenders of blackness Mm -hmm. um, who did not like the way disco essentially deracinated, took the race out Mm -hmm. of dance music. So, you know, like, like Funkadelic had a character named the anti-disco kid. Right. And so... there there are these two forces pushing against disco. And I wonder, I mean, I, I think that we hear a lot about the one where, uh, you know, meathead rock and rollers are burning disco right. records. But as a guy who thought of himself partly as being in a funk band, how did you feel about that pressure coming from the other side that you were, you would come from this musical movement in 1973 where, you know, blackness was central. Right. To black popular music in That's 1970 right. could not have been more, you know, right. I'm black and I'm proud. That's right. But then five years later, part of what disco was about was eliminating race from the conversation. Right.
2: But but and, and you're absolutely right. So there's two great examples for me. Um, at the same time, there was say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Curtis Mayfield wrote, if there's a hell below, we're all going to go. And it was fun. It's the same era. Um, we did a show in San Diego one year where we were opening for Marvin Gaye. And Marvin had never heard of us, really. And uh, anyway, we played. We got a huge standing ovation. Um, years later, when I thought that Marvin Gaye hated us because the San Diego show was unbelievable. If you look at any of the Chic tour books and, you, and they ask the members of Chic, what's the most memorable show at San Diego, California? So years later, somebody asked Marvin Gaye how he felt about disco and did he like any disco music? And he says, well, you know, there is one band I like. One band, Marvin Gaye. And I'm like going, what band is that? And he says, Chic. And he says, yeah, Chic. They really do some interesting stuff with. I mean, you can, you can find the interview. It's on record. I couldn't believe it. I, I just found this out when I was doing this book. And I thought, wow. You know, because Marvin Gaye would have been, and the other side that was anti the, the four in the floor, the anti, um, not as an artist, he wouldn't be anti Sylvester. I mean, believe me, anybody like Marvin, anybody like Sylvester, you had to have respect for him. Um, because you know, the artists that were those, uh, the early sort of disco pioneers that were obviously gay and blah, blah, blah. I mean, have you, have you ever listened to the village people's first album? I think it's sheer genius. Um, and I also think that it's, it's that kind of record that was so brilliant and so popular that it does put people on edge. They don't want to believe that gay people can come up with something that's that incredible, that that so holistically defines where they're coming from and doing it, do it in such an artistic way that the deep hidden meaning of that project almost becomes irrelevant. Like, uh, you know, when you think about the New York Yankees adopting YMCA as they, and they have umpires who are basically guys who go D's, them, and those on the field going
3: YMCA. I mean, one of the things that's, I think so powerful about it is that it is something those most powerful moments in disco are a lot of them are super, super gay. Culturally come from just super gayness. Yeah. And they are uniting people who, especially in 1979, but even today, are very uncomfortable.
2: That's right. With that word. I mean, when you think about it, when we wrote We Are Family for Sister Slade, we honestly were just writing an R&B breakdown dance record for a group of sisters that we had never met. But we saw these girls as a cutting-edge family like the Jackson Five. So it was sincere. We were trying to define these girls that were on the cutting edge, defining that lifestyle. And, of course, we know that when it comes to fashion, there are a lot of gay voices in fashion. When it comes to that sort of cutting-edge visual arts coming together, there's a gay undercurrent, if not a frontal gay thing. And my favorite thing in life... Was to watch the Pittsburgh Pirates sing, I Got All My Sisters With Me. <laughs> Bernard and I used to laugh our asses off. It was hysterical to us. We used to say, Look at these big, burly men who are probably some of the most macho dudes in America, especially really in those days. Right, 6'5, like 6'2". Right. Six, six, right? Yeah, like a million pounds. Looks like a sumo wrestler. And they're all going, We are family. Uh, I got all my sisters with me. And Nard and I used to crack up, because if you went to a gay club and played that, you'd see people who were flamboyant singing the same song with the same um, zeal. And that's what we really believed in. And that's what the disco movement gave everybody. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse
3: Thorne. My guest is Niall Rogers. The disco legend appears on the new Daft Punk album, Random Access Memories. He and I spoke in 2011 when he had just put out his memoir, *Le Freak*, an upside-down story of family, disco, and destiny. You uh, wrote and uh, produced uh, one of the all-time great gay anthems. <laughs> I'm coming out. Okay, which is I'm, I'm coming good. out. Let, let's, take, let's take a little bit of a listen to, uh, to Diana Ross and I'm coming out. First of all, tell me whether Diana Ross, at the peak of her divineness, at the apex of her celebrity <laughs> <Diva-dom>. <laughs> and just control of the world, A, knew and understood that this was basically a gay song. And B, if she did, what did she, what did she think about that idea? And where did, this, where did this even come from that you were going to write this
2: record for? All right. So here's the deal with that. Um, the, all of the coolest clubs in New York catered to a crowd that went to go there to socialize and hide from the mainstream or go to a place where they could be accepted as a mainstream. So there was a, a, a transvestite club called the Gilded Grape. Now, when I say transvestite club, that's not fair. Because anybody could go to the Gilded Grape. And matter of fact, everybody went to the Gilded Grape. It was happening. I went there to pick up girls. It was a happening <laughs> spot. Um, but there were a not insignificant number of transvestites. Yes, there was a there fair amount. Club. Absolutely. They,
3: you might even say they were the club's raison d'être.
2: Yeah, that's exactly. And they <laughs> actually called those places tranny clubs or transvestite clubs. Or There was a million names, but basically that's, that's uh, who was there. So I happened to be in the bathroom. On one of the rare occasions that I use the bathroom for actually, you know, going to the <laughs> toilet. Um, and I happened to notice that on either side of me, I was flanked by uh, a minimum of two um, Diana Ross lookalikes. And I, I really <laughs> believe that it was three or more, but I will say, you know, conservatively, it was just two. But it was still enough for me to get that light bulb over my head and go, oh, my God. What if Diana Ross, because we were working on her record at the time, I was like, "What if Diana Ross was either gay or she at least acknowledged um, you know the, the the gay movement and how, um, how much they idolize her, and she's like an important part of that's an important part of her fan base. So I called Bernard and I says, "What if we did a song called "I'm Coming Out?" And he looked at me and he says, "Damn, that's a great idea." So we wrote it and did the whole thing, orchestrated it. Now, um, my technique is I never let the artists hear the records until it's time for them to perform because I want to get that, that spark. I want them to perform for me just as I perform for them when I'm making a record. I never want a demo. Don't, don't send me any demos. I'll play it on the spot. So Diana didn't appreciate it, but you know, she came in and the first couple of songs that we had written made her really happy. So then we played I'm Coming Out and she loved it. She, you know, She sang it. And she was into it. It was great. Anyway, she went and she had a meeting with the number one DJ in America, who at the time was called, named Frankie Crocker. And when she came back in the studio, her mood had changed considerably. And she was really upset. And she just said to us, point blank, why are we trying to ruin her career? And we said, Diana, what are you talking about? Well... You know, Frankie told me that this is a gay song and people are going to think I'm gay because I'm saying I'm coming out. And this is the one and only time in my career I have ever lied to an artist. But I looked Diana Ross straight in the eye and went, what are you talking about?
3: Bullseye from maximumfun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm homosexual Brian Safi.
4: And I'm feminasty Erin Gibson. And we host... Throwing Shade, Shade. Where we take a weekly look at all the issues important to ladies.
3: And gays. And
4: treat them with much less respect than they deserve.
3: It's for gay people. It's for straight people. It's for ladies.
4: It's for people who love to laugh, who love comedy, and love tragedy and love crime. And
3: who hate drinking and driving because that's messed up.
4: And don't text.
3: Check out Throwing Shade.
4: Subscribe for free in iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org.
2: bullseyes on twitter
4: follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye
3: it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guest is niall rogers the disco legend appears on the new daft punk album random access memories he and i spoke in 2011 when he had just put out his memoir la freak an upside down story of family disco and destiny In 1983, you produced uh, David Bowie's best selling record. And it it had this amazing single on it uh, called Let's Dance. And I want to hear a little bit of this. While color lights up
1: your face.
3: There's something really interesting to me about this song, because it came for you after disco had gone from everything to nothing in the space of, I don't know, two years maybe. And your power as ultimate hitmaker with your partner Bernard Edwards had gone from, you know, just solid platinum, everything you touched, to not working anymore because people hate disco. Um, And there's something really amazing about this song, which is that I think that there is a really interesting contrast that a a lot of, that became pop music. It became what you produced for Madonna and so on and so forth. That was more than just a white person doing black people music, I think. There's this element in this David Bowie song of the coolness of Bowie, the reserve, the rock star, a slightly off-center angularity of Bowie, as a contrast with you know like what sounds in some ways like a uh what sounds in some ways like a dance record in some ways like you know like it's twist and shout or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is that was a new thing and i see somewhere in here you you mentioned bowie describing it as like a postmodern reconstruction of <sighs> dance music yeah. that is what it sounds like because of that I mean, not dissonance. It's a combination of dissonance and consonance of that coolness, that pulling back and that pushing forward that comes from dance music.
2: The the interesting thing about uh, the Let's Dance project was when David and I started working on that project. Before one note of music was determined uh, to be on that record, all we did was research, and when. David was studying himself. I was studying David. He was showing me what the past was because we could only show the past, right? That's, that's what we, everything that we could listen to and watch was something that was documented. And we were taking these documents uh, to use as the blueprint to go into the future, to this new place. And it was really interesting how the first night David and I met, all we did was talk about jazz from the most avant-garde to almost the most straight ahead and commercial. David even instructed me to make hits. I mean, literally, he said, "Not. Nah, I want you to do what you do best. And I was offended. I said, what do you mean? You, you know, yeah, I was an artist. You don't know what I do best. The world doesn't know what I do best. I've never been unleashed on the world with my genius. <laughs> I was like, no, you make hits. Oh, really? Yeah. But. I've never made a record that's been a pop record that's that avant-garde with that little pocket trumpet solo at the beginning. I mean, you, yeah, come on! But only Bowie and guys like that can get away with it. Um, you know, Bowie said to me something really fantastic when we were doing uh, "Let's Dance." He says that uh, he's never been he's never been placed in a box. He's never felt that to make music he has to do what people expect him to do or even what people think he should do. He says he always does whatever it is that makes him feel good. Basically, I'm paraphrasing him poorly, but that's what he was saying. And that gave me a lot of strength when we did Let's Dance because it made me believe that, wow, I could work with this guy who I call the Picasso of rock and roll and make pop songs, but they'd be uniquely his. Nothing sounds like Let's Dance in in my repertoire. It's the only thing that sounds like that. And that's because it was for Bowie. Nothing sounds like I'm coming out because it was for Bowie. Diana Ross. Nothing sounds like we are family because it was for Sister Sledge.
3: I want to ask you one last thing, which is that you uh, like uh, about a year ago, you had major cancer surgery. Yes. Um, And you had by then already spent years um, looking at your life Mm -hmm. in order to write this book, interviewing family members and all the people that you knew and, and that kind of thing, as well as just spending time with your recollections. And you had had this life that at times, you know, at the height of your addictions was just insanely wild and flirted with death, death every day, but you never yourself had run into that wall. Um, but I wonder how having that, having that experience of mortality changed both how you looked at at your life in the past Mm -hmm. and how you looked at how you wanted to use the life that you have in the future.
2: Well, (laughs) that's like the greatest question. Um, the life that I want in the future, actually I wrote about it today on the airplane flying in to Los Angeles that, uh, And I I say this with 100% sincerity that the life that I want for myself now is however the Grim Reaper, um, whenever the Grim Reaper decides to claim me and keep me for good, um, I just want to be able to to play songs when I'm doing it. If I lose the ability to play music, um, I'll probably be... I don't mean to be so fatalistic and end the interview on such a wacky note, but I'm really as good as dead then. I, I live for music. It's probably unfortunate that um, I'm so, that myopic, but I don't really mean that. I have a lot of interests, but I could live without those other inter- interests. I cannot live without music. I, I can't live without being able to play music. Now, what does that mean? I don't have to be a star. I don't have to make hit records anymore. I just have to be able to pick up the guitar and practice. Musician
3: and record producer Niall Rogers, we spoke in 2011. His memoir is called Le Freak, an upside down story of family, disco, and destiny. He also appears on the new Daft Punk album Random Access Memories, including its lead single, Get Lucky. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mike Nichols and Elaine May were a powerhouse comedy duo whose albums reached the Billboard Top 40 in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Here's a selection from Nichols and May's 1962 classic, Nichols and May, Examine Doctors. Office romances can get, you know, complicated. So when the couple works at a hospital, it can become a matter of life and death.
1: Scalpel. Scalpel. Gauze. Gauze. More gauze. More gauze. More gauze. More gauze. More gauze. More gauze. A little more gauze. We don't have any more gauze.
0: That's all the gauze?
1: Yeah. I don't know what happened. We had a small roll of well, gauze. Give me a sponge. There. Sponge. Clamp. You have the clamp. Suture. You have a suture. Edith. Yes. I love you. Please. Please. Sponge. You have the sponge.
0: Give me another sponge. I want you two have sponges. all the sponges. I have two sponges. We I don't. We only,
1: we only had two sponges. Edith,
0: this is terrible when we wrangle this way. But Why we do only you avoid me? We have two sponges. Why do you avoid me in the hall? I don't avoid you in you the hall. You turned your back at the coffee machine. I didn't turn my you back. You deliberately at the hall. turned your back. Excuse me. The oxygen is failing. Edith, don't change the subject. But
1: it's failing. Well, turn it
0: up. Well, Why I'm trying to. You? Is there
1: somebody else? Is there something you'd like? A suture, a sponge, something?
0: Is there somebody else?
1: I don't care to discuss it now, thank you. It's Pinsky, isn't it? I don't care to talk about it.
0: I saw you in the cafeteria I just
1: don't care to talk about it, Dr. Harris. Now, would you like anything else? Otherwise, I'd like to go.
0: Go in the middle of an operation?
1: Well, I have nothing else to hand you. You've got it all in the patient.
0: Edith, what have I done to hurt you this way? You
1: haven't done anything to hurt me. I just wish you wouldn't badger me. Badger you? I need time to think. I told you that before. I don't know you
0: like this. You're cold. You're diffident.
1: Because you badger me.
0: I haven't badgered you're you. You're
1: only making me run away.
0: Is it badgering you to tell you I love you? Is that badgering
1: you? Please do not tell me over and over in the cafeteria and operations. Right,
0: right, I'm sorry. Hmm. Give me a needle. Needle. A thread. Would you like me to thread the needle? I don't even know what I'm doing. Yes, thread it, please. All right.
1: Cat cut? Yes. Cheer up. Come on, I have a little joke for you. Knock, knock. Oh. Come on. Knock, knock. Who's there?
0: Cat cut. Cat cut who?
1: Cat cut your tongue. (laughs) Oh, come on.
0: Edith, why are you torturing me?
1: I'm not. I was trying to cheer you up.
0: Well, there's only one way you can cheer me up, and that's to say yes.
1: Please, please, Dr. Harris, not now. This is how you drive me away every time. Put your finger on this knot, please. All right, but don't do anything funny.
0: I'm not doing anything funny. I'm sewing up the patient. All now right. it's you who starts this. All things. right, all right. Oh, I do love you so. Oh,
1: Please, please let go of my finger. I knew you were going to do this.
0: Please, no, don't pull back. Let. I do. I love you. I love you.
1: Let go of my finger. Don't and... pull back. You're pulling the stick. Please, Doctor Harris, stop.
0: Edith, it is Pinsky, isn't it?
1: I don't want to talk about it now. It's please.
0: very important to me to know whether it's Pinsky or not.
1: Give me time to check. Now the oxygen
0: is failing again. Let it fail. I'm sick of this torture.
1: Please, so, Dr. Harris, everyone is looking at you.
0: I'm not going to finish this operation unless you say yes.
1: Dr. Harris, you're being impossible. I'm
0: not going to finish this operation unless you say yes, Edith.
1: Dr. Harris, this patient will die.
0: I've been tortured long enough. Yes or no, which is it going to be? This is absolute blackmail. I don't care. I don't care what lengths I go to anymore. All is fair and all that.
1: Dr. Harris, you're a doctor. A doctor. Doesn't that mean anything to you, a surgeon?
0: I'm a doctor, Edith, but I'm a man also, and I will not go on with this operation until you give me your answer, and it better be yes.
1: I have no choice.
0: Yes. All right, then. Clamp, darling.
3: That was from the recently reissued Nichols and May 1962 classic, Nichols and May Examined Doctors. It's available now on CD and digital download. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. You know, I hate to admit that I work in the fashion industry, even to myself. If if you don't know, I own and edit a blog about menswear. And the bigger it's gotten, the closer I've gotten to the business side of fashion. And the closer I've gotten to the business of fashion, the less I've liked it. Whatever your stereotypes about the fashion industry are, they're mostly true. But there are exceptions, like Bill Cunningham. For decades, Cunningham has edited On the Street, the singularly democratic fashion spread in the New York Times. It features regular people alongside models and designers, and it comes to life in the audio slideshows Cunningham records for the Times website.
4: Hello, uh, this is Bill Cunningham from the streets of New York City. And the fashion
3: I knew that Cunningham was the rare fashion journalist who cared as much about 16-year-olds in Harlem as he did about models smoking outside of fashion shows. But I didn't know much else about him until I saw the wonderful documentary Bill Cunningham, New York. Cunningham's in his 80s, and he still bikes around the boroughs wearing a janitor's work coat and shooting on a camera so beat up you wonder how it even takes pictures. He goes to every European fashion week, sitting in the front row in his anti-fashion clothes, shooting madly and documenting the art that he loves.
4: Look at Veronica. Hello, child. The diamonds have gotten bigger. He
3: was originally a milliner, making couture hats, but became a photographer by happenstance in the 60s and 70s. In the 80s, he refused payment for his work from the most prestigious fashion magazines in the world so he could have more editorial pages and full control of how what he shot was presented. If you don't take their money, he tells the filmmakers in Bill Cunningham, New York, they can't tell you what to do. His home is basically a hot plate, a piece of plywood with a mattress on it, and dozens and dozens of filing cabinets overflowing with photographs the plywood mattress bed is suspended over a couple of the filing cabinets. He's basically a fashion monk.
4: Oh, boy, someday it's all going to fall down on me. I know. I don't even want to think about that. Oh, God. Bill, <laughs> if I I'm... disappear under uh, a bunch of books, you'll know what. They're all fashion books. Imagine me
3: having Cunningham a is famously he inscrutable. He, he refused to allow interviews of any kind for years. Even those closest to him know very little about him, and... So it's shocking to hear the filmmakers ask him gently if he's gay. So I'm going to ask you two very personal questions you may or may not want to answer. It's completely up to you. But have you ever had a romantic relationship in your entire life?
4: (laughs) Now, do you want to know if I'm gay? Yes. (laughs) Isn't that a riot? Well, that's probably why the family wanted to keep me out of the fashion world. If they wouldn't speak of such a thing. Um, No, I haven't.
3: Never in your entire life?
4: No. It never occurred to me. I guess I just was interested in clothes. That's uh, the obsession. It's, It's probably a little peculiar.
3: He never quite answers the question, but he does allow that he's never had a true romantic relationship, which is heartbreaking. But Bill Cunningham's romance is with the clothes.
4: I'm not interested in the celebrities. With their free dresses, it's the clothes, not the celebrity, and not the spectacle. It's as true today as it ever was. He who seeks beauty will find it.
3: That's my outshot.
4: I be your mirror, reflect what you are. In case you don't know, I be the wind, the rain and the sunset. Light on your
3: door. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music provided to us by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. Max FunCon sold out, but be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening in September. It's going to be very, very special. That's BoatParty.biz. I guess that's about it. Just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign
4: off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.